Thanks, TJ. And thanks, Noah and Connor. Um, yeah, it's, it's really meaningful when music is going to tie into the sermon. I start getting really excited. Oh, yeah. Um, it's fun. So, Book of Acts. So, if you haven't found it yet in your Bible or on your phone, um, look, look it up because uh, I want you to follow along at the very beginning here, uh, the first 11 verses. And um, Acts, and it's got to be one of the most exciting, interesting books in the Bible. Um, it's the history of the early church, the very first Christians of all time, and the community that they shared and the mission that they were on. And it's an amazing story, and it's a very extraordinary movement of individual Christians that gather in churches, and those churches plant churches, and then those churches plant churches, and really over a time of, of less, less than 300 years, uh, the church goes from a few hundred to six million plus in the Roman Empire. And it's, it's really, uh, I mean, historians, secular and otherwise, they are scratching their head like, how did that happen? Uh, it doesn't really make sense because they didn't have any political power. They really didn't have any money. Uh, they didn't have buildings or programs or paid staff. They didn't even have the internet, guys. No internet in the first century. Hard to believe. What they did have was a lot of opposition. Um, the Jews were opposing them at first. And then once the Romans figured out that the Christians just weren't a, a part of the Jewish religion, but were actually a, a, a sect that uh, had some different beliefs, then the Romans started to persecute them in some really, really horrible ways. So you see this and you think, well... They must have some really gifted leaders. Not really. <laughs> I mean, you, you would think like there's some sort of MLK or Mahatma Gandhi or, you know, some, some great, astounding, amazing leaders. But honestly, they were pretty ordinary, both the followers and the leaders were ordinary, mostly uneducated people. A lot of them women and children and slaves. Um, Professor Michael Kruger, in his article that he wrote for the uh, Gospel Coalition, which he entitled, Early Christianity Was Mocked for Welcoming Women, he says this, It was an outsider movement in all sorts of ways, legal, social, religious, and political. Believers were widely despised, viewed with suspicion and scorn, and regarded as threats to a stable society. And then in, in, in this article, which I'd encourage you to look up, um, he, he has several sources. So here's some of the sources. So uh, Roman writer uh, Celsus, he says this, Christians show they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid. And then he comments, only slaves, women, and little children. Roman historian Pliny the Younger mentions Christians, and as examples of Christians, he mentions two female slaves, which was his way of speaking disparagingly about Christians. Uh, the Roman satirist Lucian, who loved to poke fun at all kinds of religion, uh, speaks of Christians as a bunch of widows and orphan children, who would have been the lowest of the low in uh, first century Roman culture. 
And then Roman pagan apologist Marcus Minucius Felix, there's a good name possible for a future child. I mean, maybe let me put that down. Um, he wrote against Christianity. Right? He's a pagan apologist, so he's, he's, he's writing against Christianity uh, in his work known as Octavius, and he writes this lengthy diatribe where these two characters are, are talking, and the one who's pagan says this, uh, you're recruiting from the dregs of the populace and credulous women with the inability natural to their sex. So these are some of the things that are being said in the, in the pagan culture about the church of the first century, the, 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 the culture at large. And yet, these are very unlikely people who are being looked down upon disparagingly by the, by the larger culture become part of this movement that is, is so prolific that by the 300s, 8300s, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. By this time, even the Emperor Constantine's mother has become a Christian and has influenced her son to make it the official religion. What happened? What happened during that time? And can the church of 2023, including our church of Ridgetop, can we have some of what they're having? Because it's amazing what God did in and through that little church, and I, I believe we can. Now, one caution before we get started, we don't want to romanticize the church of Acts. And I feel like this is something that, especially Protestants, this is what we do. We, we, we're going back to Acts. I saw a church this week it was on, the, on the front. It's a New Testament church, Right? And I know what they're saying, but we have to be careful, right? Because this church of Acts had a lot of growing up to do. I mean, it starts off as literally a Jewish-only movement that is purposely only sharing the gospel with Jews, which is what we'll find out in Acts as we go through it. Um, we're not trying to, to make the church like Acts again, okay? But that said, we do want to learn from our origin story. I love origin stories. Like, my favorite Batman is Batman Begins, right? Like, like I love the origin of things and, and how that affects these organizations, these companies, a family. Um, I was watching um, one of the co-founders of Apple, right? So everybody knows Steve Jobs, but there's another Steve, this Steve, Steve Wozniak, who's like really the evil genius of Apple, Steve Jobs is more the marketer, and Wozniak's more the, more the nerd. And I, I hear an interview with him, and I find myself, as I'm listening to this interview, I'm hanging on every word, because I'm like, that's one of the guys that started Apple, right? Apple, one of the most creative, huge, money-making, kind of innovative company on the planet. It's, it's their origin story. Now, obviously, we want to pay even much more attention to the origin story of the church in the book of Acts. We want to hang on every word of this book as we read about the beginnings of the church. And in the first 11 verses, we immediately start to see some basics. 
that were so important to the early church. And these basics are really important for us as Ridgetop Church in 2023. So those at least three basics in this first 11 verses. So centrality of the gospel, a dependency on the spirit, and the prioritization of the mission. Good basics, right? And they show up in the very opening verses of Acts. So centrality of the gospel. So Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Acts is written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's like a two-volume set. And so this first book that is mentioned here in the opening here is the Gospel of Luke. And Luke tells us what he wrote in the Gospel of Luke. It's kind of cool. It's like an author commenting on a previous work. And he is saying that he told us what Jesus did and what he taught, but also what he accomplished in his death, resurrection, and ascension, even, he mentions. He says before he was, quote, taken up. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the the ascension of Christ, which we get to read about here in the next few verses. And so what he is letting us know is that what happens in Acts could have never been made possible except for what happened in the Gospel of Luke, that if Christ had not come and lived a perfect life and taught us so that we would understand what his coming meant and then died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the dead in victory over sin, death, and hell, and then was ascended to the right hand of the Father. If those things had not happened, there's no Acts. There's no second volume. And so Luke, from the very beginning, is saying the gospel is the foundation of everything else that's going to be said in the book of Acts. Um, The earliest creed, the Apostles' Creed, which we worked through in the spring, uh, gives us a sense of what the early church believed about Jesus. And so this is the part that's about Jesus. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. The apostles had experienced all of that, except for the coming back part. They had experienced all of that. They experienced the human Jesus walking around and dying on a cross and being buried and being risen and ascending to the right hand of the Father. I also want you to notice what, Paul, what Luke says when he says that he wrote about what Jesus, quote, began to do and teach indicating Jesus isn't done yet. He's still doing things in the world. And how is he going to do it? Now that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's going to do it through the church. And so Luke is setting this up to help us understand that the work of Christ is still continuing, and it's continuing through 
the church. Now, let's get cracking, right? Like, there's a lot to do. Come on, church. It, it's, it's not quite what happens next in this text, right? We would expect that once they get the gospel, they get all the teaching from Jesus, that it's time to hit the road, right? Let's go on mission. There's a whole world out there to save. Um, but that's not what happens next, right? Verse 4 says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Even though they have all the teaching components, they've got the curriculum all memorized and ready to roll, Jesus is like, don't do anything. Wait. And, and this, is, this, this just doesn't seem like what he would say. Like he would think he would say, okay, go, go, go do this thing, right? Um, we got the opportunity last uh, Tuesday night to be a part of a deacon ordination at the Austin Stone, and it was like 45 people that were being ordained, and two of those, one, one my, uh, my son Corey and his wife Rebecca, and it was so encouraging, right? It's like this charge was given to them from the scripture, this is the ministry that you're going to be a part of, this is how you're going to meet the needs of our church, this is how you're going to meet the needs of the community, and there's a lot of needs, it, just, just from the, the few things that I've heard from different staff and different folks that are really involved in the church, there's a lot of needs. And of course there's needs, right? Human beings are in the church and they have a lot of needs. But the community has a lot of needs, right? You look around the St. John's location especially, and there's, there's a lot of needs that folks have in that neighborhood. And just think of them having that commissioning service there and then saying, wait, don't do anything. That would have really felt weird. And that's not what they said. <laughs> They're like, okay, you're charged. Now go get it. Like, let's do this thing, right? But here, Jesus says, no, wait, wait. And why, why wait? Well, because they don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them yet. This is a second basic, right? Like, yes, it's gospel-centered, but there's a dependency on the Holy Spirit. And I think partly... The, what, the reason Jesus does it this way is so that that will get driven in their heads and their hearts. You can't do this mission apart from the assistance of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, he wants to foster in them a dependence on God in their carrying out of the mission. It's so human, fallen human, to go just from the gospel to mission right? Instead of gospel to dependency of the Holy Spirit to mission. <laughs> and Jesus wants to make sure they, they wait, they stop, they, they depend on the work of the Holy Spirit. Because in part, God really wants this to be a co-mission. Not just a mission, but a co-mission. In mission with God. And this is His way. And this is His way from the opening pages of the Bible. You think about, He creates Adam and then Adam and God together tend a garden and name the animals. <laughs> it's a co-mission. A few pages later in Genesis, you see God assisting Noah in a big ark project, giving him 
the specs and the material lists and bringing the animals to him two by two, even shutting the door of the ark at the end of the project. A few chapters later, you have God promising Abraham and Sarah, hey, you're going to be a new nation. But Abraham and Sarah have to go have a date night in order to bring baby Isaac about, right? They're co-laboring with God by having a romantic day night. Anyway, that was lost on you guys, but anyway. Okay, <clears throat> these are only a few examples, but, and it's not just the Old Testament, right? Matthew 28, Jesus came to them, said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's definitely a command to go do things, but there's also a promise that the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth will be with them. This is why we call this the Great Commission. So the apostles are to wait, and he says that they're waiting for the promise of the Father. This is something that has been promised to them, and this is a, a, a big explainer, explanation for why these really ordinary people were a really extraordinary church, is the work of the Spirit among these ordinary people. This is... The answer to the head scratchers who are like, how did that happen? Work of the Holy Spirit. That's a big part of the explanation of how these ordinary people became this extraordinary church. Um, Jesus uses this term that's actually from Gospels, Luke, Luke's gospel uh, as well, is this idea of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, the place in Luke where this is mentioned is Luke 3, verse 15, and uh, it reads, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, as in John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ. And John, as in John the Baptist, answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is what Luke are, is alluding to in Acts, this comment by John the Baptist, who is saying you can be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And John was a really powerful and popular teacher, and lots and lots of people were going out to hear him preach and teach, and they were like, this guy's got to be the Messiah. And John's like, uh-uh, no, I am not the Messiah. I mean, I'm just doing water baptisms out here. The guy is coming, <laughs> he's going to do Holy Spirit baptisms. It's, it's going to be a completely new people of God that he's going to bring about in the power of the Spirit. As we cruise through the Gospel of Luke, we then see Jesus' baptism. Uh, Luke 3.21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So it seems like what's happening here, Jesus is getting baptized by water, and he's getting baptized by the Holy Spirit. It is descending 
on him. And if you're reading through Luke for the first time, you're like, huh, I wonder what that means. What, what does the Spirit do in Jesus' life? Well, Luke tells you, right, in the very next chapter, Luke 4.1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So just in, in Luke, up to this point, the, the, Jesus has had the Spirit descend upon him. He's had the Spirit fill him. He's had the Spirit lead him. And then later Luke writes even more that Jesus, quote, returned in the power of the Spirit. Uh, he reports Jesus um, quoting Scripture from Isaiah saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Uh, he reports that Jesus, quote, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And so it is, it is very comprehensive what the Holy Spirit is doing in Jesus' life, in his ministry. Um, and then Luke starts to report teachings from Jesus that seem to indicate that the Holy Spirit is not just going to baptize Jesus, but he's going to baptize ordinary Christians, ordinary Christ followers. Uh, we hear this uh, from Jesus in Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Huh. Seems like just normal, ordinary Christ followers can get the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus is preparing the disciples for persecution in the future, and he says in Luke 12, 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so you see this repeatedly in Luke, that the Spirit's ministry is not just going to be in and through Jesus, it's going to be in and through the ordinary followers of Jesus. Part of what he's saying is that the baptismal moment where Jesus is declared the beloved Son of God and descended upon by the Holy Spirit is something akin to what we experience when we become Christians, where we are declared the beloved sons and daughters of God, and we are descended upon by God the Holy Spirit. This is big. <laughs> This is big, and, and this is what Jesus is saying to the apostles. Wait, wait for this. Wait for the descending of the Spirit on all, all of his followers. So this is definitely the way the apostles are understanding this. So next week, you'll hear from Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching, and he'll, he'll quote from the prophet Joel. He'll say, uh, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is God's plan all along. This is why Jesus is saying, wait on the promise of the Father. This has been promised in the Old Testament, and Jesus himself has promised that this is going to happen in his own teaching to the apostles. Again, this explains in large part the ordinary Christians of the first century and how they became the extraordinary church that they were. Now, this idea of baptism, um, I think this image is important for helping us understand the work of the Spirit in the Christian's life. Um, and so we think about baptism. So we had baptisms a couple weeks ago, right? Here's one of them, I hope, right there, yeah? Um, one is, is that this work of the Spirit 
is Christ-centered, right? Think about baptism. Baptism uh, depicts the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, right? And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit is Christ-centered. It's a Christ-centered kind of, of, a, of a reality. And then secondly, the, the work of the Spirit in the Christian's life is comprehensive, this is one of the things about baptism by immersion. It plunges the whole person under the water. It is saying my whole person, mind, body, soul, all of it is under the water. It is plunged into the gospel. But here it's saying not only are you plunging all of your life into the gospel, but the, the Spirit is then coming to attend your entire life comprehensively, even parts you don't even know about yet. Your mind, your body, your soul, all of it, the Spirit is attending to you comprehensively. Now, what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not is a two-part conversion, okay? So there's, there's some teaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that it's sort of this two-part conversion, that it's like part one you become a Christian, you accept Christ, you put your faith in what Christ has done for you, and then part two, you have people come lay hands on you from the church, and then you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, that, that is not what we're talking about. Now, that said, I'm not negating that many people have had kind of a second baptism, have had this experience of the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives after they had already put their faith in Jesus. So I, no doubt there are people's stories, and I know many of them, that absolutely experience kind of this second baptism. But it's not something that is typified in the Scripture. This is not, even in Acts, you see people converting and getting the Spirit immediately, and others have to wait to have the apostles put their hands on them. And, and so even in Acts, you have these different ways of seeing the Spirit work, and the Spirit can really work however the Spirit wants to work. He's God, after all. So as I'm talking about this baptism of the Holy Spirit, I, I know for some, you're like, oh, he must be talking about the whole second blessing thing. No, that's not what I'm talking about, and I don't think that's actually biblical. And again, experientially, could that happen? Absolutely, and it does, but it's also something that is not, norm, it's not the, the sort of the normalized, it must happen this way for everyone. And I have counseled many a person <laughs> who's been in some of these kinds of churches who don't have this experience. They're not speaking in tongues. We can talk about what that means if you don't know what that means. Um, I can't go down that road. But, um, and they're like feeling like they're second-class Christians because they're not having this like second experience. And one particular friend, I mean, this dude has prophetic dreams about people and he has seen all kinds of supernatural work in and through his life, but he's never spoken in tongues. And many of the churches that he was going to, it's like, well, you're, you don't have it yet. Like, you don't have the complete package yet. We've got to pray for you, lay hands on you. And Joe's like, dude, I've had this happen, you know, 25 times. And I'm, I'm telling you, this is just not what God has for me, right? And so I say all that anyway to help, hopefully, to give a good biblical framework for this idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to completely throw it out because we're scared of it, but we also want to understand it in a biblical framework. Centrality of the gospel, dependence on the spirit, and then thirdly, prioritization of the mission. Um, as we see this starting with verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, 
Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, whom has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So tucked away in this section of verses is Acts 1.8, which is one of the most quoted sort of mission verses in the Bible, right? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses. And you do that from Jerusalem out to the other ends of the earth. I want you to notice the context of this verse. Before the verse is a conversation with, between Jesus and the disciples about geopolitical Israel. And on the other side of Acts 1.8 is the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. I don't think that's by mistake, right? Even that, that Jesus had this kind of framework around the Acts 1.8 mission statement, but also that Luke makes sure that this gets in there so that we can see the, the frame around this Acts 1.8. So the conversation that Jesus is having with the apostles is to this question, is an answer to this question, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, they've spent 40 days with resurrected Jesus. Uh, he has been taking them through the entire Old Testament and explaining how the entire Old Testament has been pointing forward to him and his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the right hand, return at the end of all days. And we know that actually from Luke 24. Luke 24 describes that Jesus did this Bible study with them to, to help them understand the Old Testament. And so he's been showing them repeatedly that this kingdom that he's establishing is beyond racial, right? It's transracial, uh, that it's uh, transcultural, that it's transnational, over and over and over in different ways. He's been trying to explain this to them. And the disciples are like, when are you going to do the Israel thing again? And I'm thinking Jesus, you know, probably wants to do the face palm right there, but he doesn't. He is very, very patient with them. Um, the disciples do not have a category for this kind of religious system. They've never seen it on the planet, ever. Every religious system in the ancient world is coupled with people, a people group, a particular culture, uh, usually a particular language, and usually a plot of ground that is like the holy ground, the holy Sight. That is typical ancient religion. Um, it was true of Judaism, right? Uh, it's a religion that, that smuggles in a culture. You dress a certain way. You eat a certain way. You have a plot of ground. Uh, you go to Hebrew school to learn Hebrew, right? Uh, it's, it's culture. It's ethnicity. It's language. And it's got a plot of ground with holy site on it, right? All of that consistent with um, ancient world religion. Islam is like this, right? Islam uh, tells you how to eat, how to dress, 
Um, Arabic language is considered a language that God created in heaven and, and gave uh, to his people. And there are certain plots of ground in the holy land of Islam that you need to go to. You need to pilgrimage to those places. You need to go to Mecca. You need to worship at that holy location. These are both examples of ancient world religion. And Jesus is teaching the disciples not that the Old Testament patterns were wrong, but they were pointing forward to something greater, Um, something beyond a particular people group, a particular culture, a particular plot of ground with a holy site on. And so when they asked Jesus about restoring the kingdom to Israel, um, he tells them, prioritize the mission. Prioritize that mission. Be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem? Yeah. Judea? Yeah. Samaria? Yeah. Are you serious, Jesus? This thing is is transracial and transcultural so much so we're going to talk to Samaritans? Are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. Actually, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus, we don't even know what the ends of the earth are yet. Yeah, humans will figure that out later. How can we do that? Uh, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in this transracial, transcultural, transnational thing that's going to go to the ends of the earth. It's even in Austin, Texas in 2023. Wow. And we're talking about it. It's awesome, isn't it? So Jesus says, you will do this. And they did. They did. And here we are as proof of it. Notice that the, the mission is centered on Jesus. He says, you will be my witnesses. You will be a witness to the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ. So in the power of the Spirit, you will witness to this reality. And you will do it to the ends of the earth. This is what Acts 1.8 is telling us. Right? This is the centered on the gospel, empowered by the Spirit, and a mission to your neighborhood and the nations. So our response to this, um, so one thing, if you're not yet a Christian, I know for me, when I was considering the, being a Christian, it, it was very exciting to me that it wasn't just about an individualistic, God's going to save me from my sins, but he was saving me to a new community and placing me on a mission with that new community. And there was just something about that, that that really resonated with me and excited me, and it gave me something to live for more than the stuff I was doing, which is okay stuff, but engaging with this new life in Christ in me that's part of a new community on a mission, all of it brought to you by the Holy Spirit, right? So if you're not yet a Christian, this is what we're inviting you into that by faith in what Christ has done for you, you're entering not just a new relationship with God, but with a community and a community on mission. And as you're, you followers of Christ, you're inviting people into this, you're also inviting them into that as well. And I think in America, we have this tendency to make it very individualistic. 
you know, we we even would say this phrase, like, accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you know? And I know what they're getting at when they say that, but living in Christ is, is not just this little personal, individualistic American thing. You're also being brought into a community, and that community is on mission. So, come and join us <laughs> by grace through faith to be a part of that. Um, as, as far as how to be receptive to the Spirit, now, I, I think we're going to learn a lot about that in the book of Acts. Um, but here's some real basics. And one is center on Christ, <laughs> which seems odd. This is one of the job descriptions of the Holy Spirit is to shine a light on Jesus, right? And you can read about that in John chapter 14 and uh, 17. And so this uh, kind of, we talk about our church being centered on Christ. That's why we talk about that. Like, like the Holy Spirit's like, I can get, get on board with that. I can be a part of that, a centrality of, of Christ. Um, we want to embrace dependency on the Holy Spirit how do you do that? I think the main way you do that is prayer. When we pray, we are showing our dependency on God and the work of the Spirit in our lives, right? So like Wednesday night, some of you were here, we did a little eat, pray, plan. Um, We looked at some scripture together and we interpreted it through a Christ-exalting lens and then we prayed like, why do we do that? We got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of planning to do. Like, because I know the Holy Spirit shows up when we exalt Christ and we pray. And I, I think he did. I think he did. I think, and I, I know if, if the environment is going to be a place where the Spirit is at work, it's going to have those two things going on. There's going to be a centrality of Christ. There's going to be prayer. Um, those, are, those are super Basic, but I, I think uh, very, very important. Um, Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade that became Crew, uh, has a little book. I think it's just called The Holy Spirit. And he has a simple little illustration. I don't know. This is, for whatever reason, this stuck in my brain for a long time. And he talks about the relationship with the Holy Spirit being like a breathe in and a breathe out. And so this posture of stopping, waiting, praying, saying, Lord, I am empty. I can't do this. Help me. Fill me. Strengthen me. Give me wisdom. And then breathe out. You don't just breathe in. (laughs) But you, you breathe out. And you do prioritize the mission. You do move out as God's witnesses of the good news of the gospel. But you do that as a breathe in first and then a breathe out. We're reminded of that centrality of Christ every time we come to this table. On the night on which Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, he's looking around at his little band of followers, and they are a wreck. They are betraying him. They are going to fearfully, totally abandon him in the next hour or two after this. And he looks at them. Some of them are vying for vice president of the new administration and asking if they could be on the right and left. I mean, it's just just horrible. It's just swirling around him. And in that 
crazy mess, he takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and then gives it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He knows <laughs> there's no way that they're going to be transformed from these ordinary people into this extraordinary church if he doesn't go to the cross and let his body be broken. In the same way, he takes the cup. After he's blessed the cup, he gives it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He's letting them know, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. This is, this, yeah, it's this for you, but it's for many. And I mean, there's no way they could have even had a smidge of understanding of what he meant when he said many. Is this billions of ordinary brothers and sisters in Christ who put their faith in Christ, become part of this new spiritual community, placed on this spiritual mission of being witnesses to the nations. And he knew that that would not happen if it wasn't for his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, right? He says, hey, would you do this until I come back? And so he's letting them know. He, he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, which is a place of absolute authority, right? Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, that's who we're exalting. That's who we're worshiping today, is the exalted Christ at the right hand of the Father. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, he is bringing his rule and reign in the midst of his church and the mission of his church. This is what you're part of. Right? Isn't that much cooler than here's five ways to have a better life today in Austin, Texas? I mean, that stuff's important. But guys, we're in this like cosmic mission that is, it's, it's millennia old. And yeah, we're not going to go back and be acts, but we can learn from this little fledgling church as we move forward into God's vision for 2023 and beyond. So let's pray. God, we thank you for just the way that you get involved with us, you get down in it with us, and you make a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and washed clean, and then filled with your divine presence. And then place us on this mission with our fellow brothers and sisters in a family. And so thank you, God, that, that this is what you've invited us into. Uh, we pray that you would help us in the power of the Spirit to understand what does that look like in 2023 uh, in Austin, Texas? How, how do we do this? Um, you know. I, I, I know that you know how to form this church, and so we invite you to do that, and uh, God, to encourage, to strengthen, to challenge, to correct, to train, all that you need to do this morning as we reflect on these scriptures and this teaching, and uh, we pray you'd bless this bread and cup. Lord, thank you that you've given us these symbols to remind us of the main thing and to center ourselves, our hearts, on gospel truth. And I pray that is what would happen. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.